0: This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. America WK with your host, Andrew WK. There are these moments when you are compelled to do things that defy your own logic, that defy your own taste, that defy defy your own preferences. You wind up doing things that you don't like
1: to do, and yet you like doing them almost because of it.
0: America WK Saturdays 10 a.m. to noon on the Blaze Radio Network and go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1 you're listening to Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio only on the Blaze Radio Network
1: Slater Crusaders America's the greatest country in the world thank you for being here listen I gotta be honest uh, right before the show begins here I made a very bad mistake last night. I was with uh, five of my best friends. I should say, my wife was hosting a bachelorette party with her friends from Tennessee. So I was uh, politely asked to uh, vacate the premises for the week, pretty much. <laughs> so the girls took over the house, and I shacked up with uh, a buddy of mine, actually, three friends of mine. They're living quite the, the bachelor pad downtown. Um, and by bachelor pad, I mean, man, it's disgusting. I used to, I used to live live like that. And, and now, just a couple of years, my wife, she's shaped me up enough where I uh, drink water out of one of their glasses, and I was drinking, and I was like, there's no way they've ever really washed this thing. Is it? If, <laughs> they can't, it wouldn't have bothered me in the past. But, um, so I was spending the, the, the time with these guys. and um, We were sitting around last night. It was about 8 o'clock. And uh, someone decided that it would be a good idea to suggest to the group that we play Risk. That was at 8 o'clock last night and the game ended not too long ago. So, a little loopy, a little sleepy, a little angry that I took every single person out of the game except for the one guy at the end and, and... I lose. And I had all these cards. Don't, don't even get me started. Risk is a game that will test your friendship. It will test your friendship with the, with the alliances and the betrayals that come with them. It will also test your age. And I feel like I'm getting too old for uh, for all-nighters. So uh, we put Risk away for uh, probably till next year. Um, all right. Let's get on with the show today. Uh, most embarrassing moment of your life. Go. What is it? Go back there. Most embarrassing moment. Moment of your life, and and did that embarrassing moment change you in any way? Hopefully for the better. But did it did that embarrassing moment change you at all? Uh, quick trick uh, or quick uh, uh, story about a trick that was played on me one time. I was with a group of friends. This was when I was in Tennessee, and uh, we were actually going to take a late night tour of the FedEx distribution center in Memphis. Which, if you ever have the chance to do it, is actually Pretty fantastic. And speaking of late nights, I think we went at 2 a.m. You have to go in the middle of the night to the FedEx Center. Have you ever seen Monsters, Inc.? Um, It's Monsters, Inc., right, where they have the scene where all the doors are being picked up uh, and, like, these crazy conveyor belts uh, to connect the monsters with the kids' rooms. Like, the FedEx distribution center looks a lot like that. There's tons of Just as far as the eye can see, these conveyor belts with these boxes and machines picking things up and and Burst of air pushing certain envelopes off in a different conveyor, but it's crazy, really fun, so if you're ever in Memphis, Graceland and the FedEx distribution Center, anyway, uh friends are coming through they they're picking me up, and uh, I was the last person to get to get in the, the the bus here and uh they said, Hey, slater, what's your most embarrassing moment of your life? you got to tell us we already went around the room, we already told ours it's your turn now. What's the most embarrassing moment of your life? So I told them and and then uh and then it turns out that they never told theirs. They, they just made that part up. So they got me on that. Fun trick to play on uh, someone if you're in that situation. Anyway, um, hopefully, most embarrassing story of your a moment in your life. Hopefully it was a funny story. Maybe you thought of a funny story. Um, but if you ask that question to Kali Sweeney, the most embarrassing moment of his life still hits home 30 years later. And it wasn't even a single moment necessarily. It was all the times when he was asked to read in front of the class. When he had to read aloud in front of the entire class, he got this just knot in his stomach. And he said, uh, quote, I would st- uh, uh, da, da, da. Every time I was asked to read, I would drop the book and start a fight with the closest guy next to me. Anything to avoid admitting that I was the young man getting passed from grade to grade. Totally illiterate. Could not read. Graduated high school. Today, Sweeney's 47 years old. There was a day when he stopped fighting. He stopped hanging out with gangs. He stopped doing drugs. Um, It was the day he got shot, but that wasn't necessarily the day that changed him. He was in the hospital and his brother came to visit him and showed him a picture of his friends, his friends, his older brother's friends from high school. And he pointed to one of the guys in the picture and he said, shot. They pointed to the guy next to him, killed, killed, life sentence, shot, 30 years to life, dead, right on down the line, every single person. That was the moment that Sweeney decided to stop being the victim. Now, he was already out of high school at this point. And that's when he decided, I'm going to learn how to read. Think about it. Have you. Have, think of your life right now. What's the last time you sat down and you said, I'm going to learn how to do that, whatever that thing is? I'm going to learn karate, or I'm going to learn how to cook, or I'm going to learn how to barbecue. I'm going to learn how to. Sweeney had to say, you know, I'm going to learn how to read. And this is after he graduated high school. Amazing. This is in Detroit. I should have said that. I'm sorry. This is in Detroit. Now, today, uh, he still fights like he did when he was in high school. A little different, though. He's a boxing coach. And he started a boxing program to mentor kids in 2007. He took over an old car wash in Detroit and turned it into a boxing gym. He said, he says, quote, show me a guy who's fighting in school and I'll show you somebody with acceptance problems. Show me a funny guy. Kid like me. I was always cracking jokes. And I'll show you a guy who can't read or spell. He's overcompensating. So he started this mentoring program. It's a boxing gym uh, for kids to do something after school, get off the street. But it didn't take long before he ran out of money. He sold everything he owned, everything to keep it afloat. He ended up living in the gym. Think of that dedication. Talk about putting your life, your heart, your soul into something you believe in. And obviously for Sweeney here, this was a righteous cause. He was preventing kids from going through school illiterate like he was. Preventing kids from, from getting discouraged and dropping out and joining gangs and dying like so many of his friends. And, like, he almost did. But it was about to be shut down. He couldn't keep it afloat anymore. Four years into the project, Jessica showed up. She uh, lived out in the Burbs, white woman, uh, working on her doctorate. And her personal trainer said, you know, you should do some boxing on the side of your training here. It's a good workout. So she Googled boxing gym. This place pulled up. She showed up, having no idea that it was actually an after-school program for at-risk kids or whatever, But she walked in and she was just blown away. She's like, what, what is this place? She says, I'm looking at these kids who live in horrible home situations, but there was a glimmer of hope in their tiny eyes. So she talked to Sweeney, asked him a bunch of questions, and he barely answered any of them because he was ashamed that uh, he was going to shut down the place in a week or two. But eventually she got out of him that, um, what the fate of, of, uh, this gym was going to be long story short. She created a tax exempt nonprofit status for the gym. They got a ton of grants from companies in Detroit, Madonna, and M&M have even donated time and money. And the gym is up and thriving. Jessica says, it's funny how life leads you in a direction that you're supposed to go. What are, like, what are the chances? What are the chances of any of that stuff happening of Jessica Googling? Mm, yeah, boxing gym and then showing up at this place one day and using her skills and talents. To help Sweeney's dream continue. The program's called Books Before Boxing. Because it's about priorities. Books before boxing. And the program is exploding. But here's the problem. There's a waiting list to get in. There's a waiting list to get in. 550 kids. Think about this. 550 kids. Whose life depends On learning to fight for the right things. In that boxing gym, you don't just just learn how to to throw a punch. You don't just learn how to fight. You learn how to fight for the right things. In the right way. And there's a waiting list for that. And I love this line from Sweeney. He says, the streets have no waiting list. Ron uh, Fournier wrote a uh, piece about this place in the National Journal. And the headline was, the street... Uh, the streets have no wait list. And I read that. And I said, what, what does that mean? What do you mean the streets have no wait list? What are you talking about? I had no idea what he meant. You figured it out before I did. The streets have no wait list. 550 kids want to learn to fight for their lives with real mentors and, and find purpose and learn dedication and everything that they need in life to be successful. They yearn for it. They're yearning for it. They need it. They want it. They know they need it. And there's a waiting list. But the gang down the street, well, they'll accept him right now. Come as you are. No wait list here. And it's not just free. You'll get rich, they say. And we'll teach you all you need to know. How does it get any better than that program? And this program's like a, where, where you live, wherever it is. I guarantee you this program is just like this, where it's around a thing, in this case boxing, but tutors there, role models, mentors at this uh, books before boxing on weekends, they do community service projects around Detroit. This is life-saving stuff right here, all from a man who graduated high school without even knowing how to read. I love the story on so many levels, but that point right there is my favorite part. I maybe could have even told the story leaving that part out until the end. Cut, cut the show. Let's start it over. Let's do it again. I'm just go with it. Didn't even know how to read, so I just think of you know the, the things I could do to help people. And God, what do you do? Excuses, excuse, excuse. Ah, I'm not the right person. I don't know that. I don't have the right skills. I don't. Know the, right thing. the man didn't know how to read. But man, he had a passion. He found his purpose and he got it done. Love it. one 93 Now, that being said, hopefully we start the show off on a nice inspirational note. What in the world is going on where we can have kids graduate without, not know- without knowing how to read? <laughs> that, that, that is something we need to address here. And we will next. 1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on twitter mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
2: you're listening to mike slater on the blaze radio network
1: You're listening to Mike Slater. Slater, Slater. Slater Radio on Twitter. Slater Radio on the Tweet Machine. Thank you for um, being here on this beautiful Saturday or whenever you're listening to the podcast. Uh, think about the, the, the part of the story that just, it, just infuriates me and really does is that this man, Sweeney, graduated high school. Without being able to read at all, completely illiterate. How is that possible? How is that possible? And isn't that all you would ever need to know about the state of our education system? That a single person, let alone hundreds of thousands of people, certainly, who graduate who don't know how to read, and I don't just mean, yeah, they may be dyslexic or something like that, or don't learn to, I mean, just never learn to read. Now, we know in San Diego, and I know many other cities, uh, there's a, a vast majority of kids in our inner city schools um, who can't do math or read at grade level. But some can't read at all. How is it possible? How can a system be so broken and the teacher so powerless and the administrator so selfish that a, a single student could graduate without knowing how to read the words on their diploma? And I just want to be clear it's not I don't I don't blame the teachers on this one I mean if you got a class of 30 kids and f- I not know five of them can't read <laughs> what are you going to do the system says the system says you got to keep moving the system says you got to pass them you got to pat them on the back give them the grades for trying can't save everyone like what, how ridiculous how pathetic there's, there's no doubt in my mind. It's so frustrating. There's no doubt in my mind that the education system is designed for the adults, uh, or I should say, by the adults for the adults. It's a jobs factory. It's a, it's a heartless bureaucracy full of people who care, taken over by a system that can't. The people care. I met a, a teacher the other day. Man, she loves her students. First grade teacher loves them. Loves like. Everything about each and every one of her kids loves them to death. This is not critical of her or anyone like her, anyone who loves their job. It's not the teacher's fault. Of course, it's a bad teachers, but that is, it's a system. The system is, I, I want to unleash these amazing teachers. Because w- what kind of absurd bureaucracy is is, is operating right now? That would allow kids to graduate without knowing how to read. It's crazy. You know what? And it's led by, um, it's led by an ideology, by a philosophy that is growing uh, in America. Started in the colleges and now it's moving in the K-12 through 12 system. Jonathan Haidt. I saw a, uh, uh, watched a video of a talk he did at Yale. Um, he, made, he made up two universities. Coddle. You and strengthen you. And he got up in front of the kids and, and presented to be an admissions officer at each of these schools. and Doing a, an admissions presentation telling you everything you need to know about Cottle University. So at Coddle University, they have a, a few truths that they live by. First, people are fragile. People are very fragile. And uh, anything that upsets you is, uh, is liable to to damage you for the rest of your life. But don't worry, we will protect you because we, we believe that people are fragile. Second truth, never, never blame the victim. So because of that, we're never going to teach any coping skills, right? We're never going to, um, ask you to change anything about yourself because that, that blames the victim. Right. If, if, we, if we tell you to change something about yourself, then we're saying that, that you're the reason that something didn't go perfectly. And we're not going to do that because we, we don't blame you. We don't blame the victim. So we're going to uh, wipe away any difficulties that you're ever going to have uh, in your time here um, so that you don't have to change anything about you. And the rule number three is that your neighbor's eyes are absolutely full of specs. Oh, it's ridiculous. And, and you, we're you we are going to train you at Coddle U to be masters at looking at the specs in other people's eyes. So come to Coddle U and we will help you to see, uh, to see the problems that other people have with, the, with their lives. <laughs> or what's wrong with everyone else. And then he, he broke character. And then he became the guidance counselor at Strengthen University. And Strengthen you uh, they got a couple truths too. First is, uh, not everyone agrees with you, and you still have to work with them. So we're going to read a lot of different books of people that you don't agree with. We're going to hear from a lot of different people that that may not agree with you. Uh, and you're also going to read How to Win Fl- Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Because when you encounter people who have different views than yours, you're going to have to still work with them. Truth number two is that you can overcome anything. It's a, a direct opposite of you're fragile. No, no, no. You can overcome anything. And truth number three, improve yourself. Know yourself, improve yourself. Anyway, I, I, I bring this up to go back to Sweeney. The reason that we will graduate and, and pass this kid along who, who doesn't know how to read is because this ideology of coddle you has taken over K through 12. First, people are fragile. So we can't acknowledge that a student can't read because he may be hurt by that. Also, we can't, we can't help him learn to read because that's blaming the victim – and, and also it's it's society, all it's the speck in someone else's It's society's fault. It's society's racist. That's why Sweeney can't read. The system's set up against him. There's nothing we can do about it anyway. It's everyone else's problem, not ours. Amazing. Way too many kids slipping through the cracks. Really a shame. One eighty eight. Nine hundred thirty-three. Ninety-three, Mike Slater. Show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word, Mike
0: Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: crusader missed a note there Thanks be in here um all right let's let's get some good news here I'm sorry I ended that last segment on a uh, on a negative note I didn't mean to I don't like to ever do that I needed like 10 more seconds I would have had a more positive tone I'm sorry um so let's get some good news here uh, opportunity and mobility is thriving in America. Or are thriving as much as it ever has? I think it could thrive a lot more, uh, but thriving as much as ever. Let me let me prove that statement. Because the president the other day, I just saw the short of this. The president the other day was uh, mocking Republicans, saying we're we're too gloomy, um, and he said we're like grumpy cat, and then he made the grumpy cat face or something. Which I mean, I. I Yes, I mean the Republicans going to be gloomy. I guess my la- was the la- was the last segment gloomy when I talked about high schoolers graduating from high school not knowing how to read. Like if I if we articulate that reality and talk about how that's unacceptable and ways to change that. Is that is that being gloomy or <laughs> or real? That I guess is how you present it. But all right, fine. I I see your challenge, Mr. President, and I will raise you uh, a little discussion about uh, opportunity or mobility in America. A child who is born in the lowest quintile. So a quintile is uh, 20%. So uh, you, you divide, uh, break up uh, the, the, the uh, how, do I word, how do I word this? Take all the people in America and uh, the top 20%, richest 20%, income, richest 20% is the top quintile. Top top 20% of people. And then the the bottom quintile. And then you have the three quintiles, three groups uh, in the middle there. So top quintile, bottom quintile, and then the middle three quintiles. adds up to 100%. So if you're born in the lowest quintile, so the poorest 20% of Americans, you have, today in America, you have almost exactly the same chances of reaching any of the other income quintiles as an adult as anyone else has. I'll explain that more in a second, but let me come out with the catch first. And there is a catch to that. It's a big catch. Your parents have to be and stay married. Kids who are born whose parents never marry, half of them remain in the bottom quintile for their entire lives. Half of them remain in the poorest 20% of Americans for their entire lives. I want to quote here from Oren Cass from the Manhattan Institute, and I think this is a very powerful sentence, so so it may sting, uh, but I think it's true. He said, being raised very poor does not cut off opportunity. But what about being very poorly raised? Let me say it again. Being raised very poor does not cut off opportunity. But what about being very poorly raised? Well, yes, it does. That does cut off opportunity. Let's look at Bernie Sanders here because he's the poster child for this. Uh, well, not poster child, uh, poster octogenarian for, for income inequality. So much focus on it and it's so, so much focus on materialism, so much focus on money, so much focus on redistributing money as if money is going to solve everyone's problem. That's what it is. Progressives are materialists. By their nature, they're obsessed with it. Listen to what they say and how they say it. they're obsessed with money and material things. Because if Bernie Sanders or any of them were serious about the issue of income inequality, they would focus on ending the cycle of poverty. And the reason that there's a cycle of poverty is the erosion of the family, period, end of sentence. Now, there are many economic factors that, that, that contribute to that, right? Welfare replaces dads. Public schools replace parents. Prison Replaces the home, so there are programs that can that can um, help this situation. But but all the those programs we're talking about would require less government, not more. Let me say this one thing, and then I'll, I'll make it more real here. Uh, we're not going to go down this road today. We've done it before, but we've talked about Alexandra collintai Uh, Alexandra Kalantai was the highest ranking woman in the Soviet government, 1920s and on. And she talked about ending the family. (laughs) She talked about how the government will raise your kid, like truly raise them, not help you raise, raise them from birth to uh, they're 18. So communism in its most pure state is not about eroding the family. It's about completely ending the family. and replacing it with government. Now we're a lighter version of that, but in the end it's just as harmful. Now, I want let me make it more real here. Do you remember the uh John Edwards speech from 2004? It was his there there are two Americas speech. This is at the Democratic National Convention. Um, John Edwards who really gosh, thank goodness that didn't happen. Like unbelievable phony. What a disaster it would have been for our country. I don't mean politically. I don't mean like policy wise if he became vice president. I just mean like just a black eye on our country. If he became um, vice president, And then we found out after he was vice president, all the horrible things he's horrible, horrible choices he's made in his life. Anyway, um, in that speech of 2004, at the democratic national convention, he was talking about his parents. It's right in the beginning. He's talking about his parents. He says, you taught me the values That I carry in my heart. Faith. Family. Responsibility. Opportunity for everyone. You taught me that there's dignity and honor. In a hard day's work. You taught me to always look out for our neighbors. To never look down on anybody. And to treat everybody with respect. He then talked about his dad. He said my father. He worked in a mill all his life. And I still remember vividly all the men and women who worked in that mill with him. I can see them. Some of them had lint in their hair. Some of them had grease on their faces. They worked hard. And they tried to put a little money away so that their kids and their grandkids could have a better life. Then he talked about his mom. He said, my mother had a number of jobs. She worked at the post office so she and my father could have health care. She owned her own small business. She refinished furniture to help pay for my education. I've had such incredible opportunities in my life. I was blessed to be the first person in my family to go to college. I worked my way through, and I had opportunities beyond my wildest dreams. So the whole point of John Edwards' speech is that he grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. He grew up on the other America, the poor America. And now look at him. And that's always weird to me that, you know, isn't that proof right there that there's still income mobility and, and, and opportunity in America when you can be born poor like that and then run for vice president. Same thing with Barack Obama, right? Uh, you know, lower income, but also, um, you know, talking about, oh, we're such a racist country and we elected a president of the United States. <laughs> it's so bizarre. Anyway, here's why I bring this up. This is how he ended his speech. He said, the heart of this campaign is to make sure all Americans... Have exactly the same kind of opportunities that I had, no matter where you live, no matter who your family is, no matter what the color of your skin is. And here's the truth. It matters a lot what your family is. He says, you know, I want there to be opportunity no matter who your family is. It matters a lot who your family is. Now, maybe he meant, you know, no matter who your family is, like, even if you're not born into Bill Gates's family, you're still going to have opportunity. And sure, but. It matters a lot who your family is. So let me break down these numbers a little more detail. People who grew up in the lowest quintile with two parents, two married parents, right? So you're a kid, you're born in the the bottom 20% of Americans, the poorest 20% of Americans. Only 17% of those kids stay in the poorest 20% as adults. Only 17%. 23% go up one quintile group, one income group. So they're not in the poorest 20%. They're in the uh, second poorest 20%, if you will, right? 20% go up two income quintiles. So now they're right in the middle. Another 20% in the middle. And then 20% go up four income groups. So now they're second to the top. And wouldn't you believe it? 19% of those kids grow up to be adults that are in the richest 20%. Of Americans. That right there is amazing. And this is right now. This isn't, well, you know, if we I'm not making these up like, well, if we instituted free market policies, this is what it would look like. This is this is right now. If you're a child, let me say this again, because this is so amazing. If you're a kid born in the poorest 20% of Americans with two parents, only 17% of those kids are gonna stay in the poorest 20%. 20, 23% are going to go up a quintile, 20% up two, 20% up four, and 19% are going to make it all the way to the darn top. That right there is amazing, and that is only possible in America. And what John Edwards in his To America speech was unknowingly, unknowingly his argument um, wasn't for new economic policy. His argument was for strong families. Strong families with strong work ethic and values. And he argued that there's a, it's important to have a community of people who are close-knit, looking out for each other, and who provide pe- plenty of positive role models around you. That's what he was He didn't know that that's what he was arguing for, but when he was describing his life and like, look at me. I'm, here I am running for vice president. Yeah, that's why. That's why. Not for any economic policy. Not because of any big government program. It's because look at who your parents were. Look at who the community was. We have to get back to that model. Here's why we don't. Because it's not something politicians can control, and it's not something they can promise. Right? You can't. You can't promise that as a you, no one's going uh, Bernie Sanders can't stand up and be like, "Hey, vote for me." And I will make sure that your kids grow up in a secure two-parent home and, and I vote for me and I'll make sure that you teach them the value of work ethic and being punctual and looking people in the eye and determination and hard work and grit. And I'll make sure that you eat dinner together every night of the week where you can talk about your day. <laughs> That's not how politics work. No politician can promise that, even though it's what matters the most in life. So because no politician can promise that, they make up other promises and tell you that that's what's going to solve all your problems or all of our problems, all of society's problems, all of the country's problems. They can't do it at all. They never can. They never will. You trust them. It's crazy. So anyway, take that with you. Income, mobility. When anyone, ever anyone talks about income inequality, first of all, say there's nothing inherently bad about income inequality. There's nothing inherently good about it. It just is. Uh, But there's certainly nothing bad Bad about it and immediately change the subject to income mobility and the truth is that income mobility is thriving in america just as much as it ever has before and that's good news now it can do better absolutely but that's more freedom not more government one 933 93 mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
2: mike slater on the blaze radio network
1: later um, I think thats uh, I think this is encouraging the the, the fact that income mobility is, is alive and well and thriving uh, for even kids born in the poorest 20% of Americans if their parents uh, are and uh, stay married and, of course, a disclaimer, of course, it doesn't mean if you're your parents are divorced or whatnot that you're, you have an economic death sentence or anything like that. Goodness gracious, no. But uh, the, the greatest chances a child has is, um, well, strong faith, family, community, and traditional values. These are the bedrock values that built America. So instead of an economic revolution, which, please, we need. Don't, don't get me wrong. We've been together long enough. You know my... Economic policies and principles and all this stuff, but we need a we need a new great awakening more than anything, more than anything. Let me let me share this poll. Uh, this is in 2010. Twenty percent of people in the in the in the lower class like income class, twenty percent of people said that people can't be trusted. Excuse me, people can be trusted. So that means eighty percent of of the poorest Americans say people can't be trusted. And Less than half of people say that others try to be fair. And think about it: if they these are people who are answering these negatively. Or they, they grew up in broken families. They had difficulty trusting people. Um, people in their lives were not fair. Did not provide security, stability, and they're going to grow up and and not trust people and not be fair to people. And then the cycle continues. Right, growing up without examples of uh parents. It doesn't have to be parents, it can be role models. My uh my boss here at the in San Diego, remember when uh, my dad died and he was he was he drove me to the airport. I did do the show the next morning because we weren't sure his stroke, we weren't sure what it was. But um he drove me to the airport and he's like, Mike, you you have you had a great time with your dad. Uh, my dad died when I was four or something like that. And uh I said, What'd you do? How'd you do it? And he said, Oh, my mom Surrounded me, was sure to surround me with incredible male mentors, male role models. So, there's ways to do this, but you get the idea. Growing up without these examples of what it means to be trustworthy and fair, naturally, it's going to make it very difficult for these kids to grow up thinking that other people are trustworthy and fair. And then it makes it difficult for them to develop these characteristics and themselves as adults. So, the cycle continues. And that's why on this show we say all the time without value, you can't have values. I want to bring it back and talk about uh, a few more economic principles tonight. I want to go to Denmark. I'm going to go to Denmark coming up next on the Mike Slater Show. Because apparently we're supposed to be like Denmark or something. So we'll chat about that coming up next, Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. From Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Slater Crusaders, I just uh, Googled the score of the Vols game. Tennessee's playing uh, Alabama today. And uh, looking at all these pictures right here of a, a wedding. Someone, someone got married at the tailgate of the... Uh, Alabama, Tennessee, <laughs> Tennessee. God bless America. Good stuff right there. Um, coming up, I'm gonna do this in the next hour. I think if that's all right. Um, I want to talk about Benghazi, but let me just tell you where where I'm coming from, and, and we're gonna do something a little different than than I've heard other anywhere else. Um, of course, the four Americans who were killed in Benghazi. Uh, I want to. Talk a little more about these men, just to remind us of why it's important to get to the truth. Let's not get buried in the politics of it. Let's uh, remind ourselves why why this matters. And being here in San Diego, three of the four Americans who were killed uh, lived in or were from San Diego. So Sean Smith, he lived or he grew up um, five minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Uh, Ty, uh, Ty Woods lived in Imperial Beach, which is uh, 15 minutes south of the city. And then Glenn Doherty lived in Encinitas, which is 30 minutes north of the city. It's not far from where I live. So when we cover Benghazi on my local show here in San Diego, it's it's a local news story. Yeah, it happened 7,000 miles away from San Diego. But it's a local news story because all these families live right here. So I want to talk about Benghazi in the next hour from that perspective but i want to wrap up chatting about income equality income mobility uh economic policies denmark right? apparently we're supposed to be more like denmark i think we talked a little bit about it uh last week right talked about how there's we're supposed to believe that you know denmark is some sort of a utopian democratic socialist paradise even though it's it's not at all <laughs> it's not nice, he's don't get me wrong but it, It's not a utopia unless you think it's a utopia to pay a 60% income tax if you make above $50,000 a year. Think about that. Let me just drive that home real quick. In America, we have a 35% income tax. Uh, In California, the top income tax is 13.3% on top of that. Um, But let's say you live in Tennessee where there's no income tax. 35% income tax. It's the top income tax. But that kicks in if you make over $400,000 a year. In Denmark, it's 60%, so you know, almost twice as high. But for everyone, it makes more than 50000 <laughs> That's everyone. So when these uh, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton and all the rest talk about raising taxes on the rich, no, they're going to raise taxes on the middle class, just like Denmark. And it's wild because Denmark, a few years back, Denmark and Sweden, they started cutting back on their welfare programs. Because they saw what it was doing to to families' work ethic and and, um, and the innovation in the country. So it's wild that we want to be more like them when they want to be less like them. <laughs> you know I mean? so he said, we're, we're tripping over ourselves to be more like Denmark. And Denmark's like, ooh, we don't want to be like Denmark anymore. It's wild. Also worth noting that Sweden... If Sweden became the 51st state in America, then it would be the 10th poorest state in the country. Be the 10th poorest. France would be the 4th poorest. And then a wild perspective crasher right there. I mean, like, everyone's like, oh, Sweden, all the Scandinavian countries are so prosperous. Everything's so clean, everything's so nice. Ah, that's where IKEA is. And it's like, oh, everyone's so rich. And the welfare programs take care of the poorest and other first of all 40 percent of swedes would be considered low income uh by united states standards if they became the 51st state but also it's the 10th poorest state in the country so like anyone who's lusting over the uh progress of sweden you might as well be lusting over the the wealth and progress of louisiana or something <laughs> like what are you doing? Like it's, it's crazy, these made-up visions that, that people are creating that doesn't exist. Now, if you want a real history of the Scandinavian countries, in the 19th century and just remember all this stuff when Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton talk about Denmark and all that in the 19th century, 1800s, the Scandinavian countries were some of the poorest countries in the world. That's why in the 1800s, so many Swedes immigrated to America. And then in 1870, Stockholm, capital of uh, Sweden, decided to begin uh, some free market reforms. They used to have a, a farming economy, purely farming economy. And they instituted stronger property rights and free markets and rule of law and uh, in a v- more innovation and all that stuff. And then they started to diversify their economy and they grew uh, and became very wealthy uh, in um, from 1870 to 1936, so World War II, Sweden had the highest economic growth in the world. That's a pretty long stretch. 66 years of the, the, the highest economic growth in the world. I mean, they were booming like, I guess you would say, Hong Kong has been booming in the last 20 years or so. Right, Incredible economic growth. And it wasn't until the 60s and 70s that they started to turn uh, to their version of socialism. It, was 16, it hasn't been like that forever. And we're just seeing the fruits of it now. And it's getting worse. In 1975, Sweden was the fourth richest country in the world. 1975, fourth richest. 1993, they were the 14th richest. And now they'd be one of the poorest states in America. So what's the key to this? If it's not socialism, what's the key? What's What's what we talked about in the last hour? It's not economic policy. It's social policy. It's culture. It's their society. It's um, uh, a strong uh, social cohesion they have in the Scandinavian countries. A strong emphasis on work and responsibility and a commitment to rule of law and egalitarian society. It's the idea that that, uh, people are equal under the law um, and and equal to each other um, as opposed to, let's say, like a caste system in India, which is not very conducive to economic growth. Right, but there's societal reasons. Someone uh, a couple decades back asked Milton Friedman, one of the greatest economists ever, why poverty was so low in Sweden. So look at the poverty rate. I don't know what it is off the top of my head. But um, the poverty rate in Sweden really low. And, and Bernie Sanders and the rest will cite that as proof that welfare programs uh, help. By the way, again, 40% of Swedes would be considered low income by American standards. But uh, why is the poverty rate so low in Sweden? And obviously, oh, it's all the welfare programs. And you know what Milton Friedman said? He said, you know, we don't have many poor Swedes in America either. Think about that. (laughs) We don't have many poor Swedish people in America. It's true. People of Swedish descent in America have an income 20% higher than the average and a poverty rate half of the average. Because they took those same values with them from Sweden and brought them here in america, work ethic uh rule of law, responsibility, family community studies society that that 's the key i I guess how do I worry this? I guess my point is it 's we keep trying to find the the holy grail of economic policy we find the one. The one policy or the one arrangement of a policy or the one variation of a policy that's going to solve all of our problems, social and economic, doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Now, don't get me wrong. You know me. Big free market guy and all that stuff. But that, really, that's just government getting out of the way. It's government getting out of the way, and it's letting society do the rest. There's no economic policy that's going to make us prosperous. The economic policy is get out of the way, and then it's the people, it's the society, it's the culture, it's the families, it's the individuals who are free that uh, make us prosperous. Does that make sense? The key is to be left free, and, and then we'll see what cultures do with that. And I'll, I'll end with uh, a quote from Kevin Williamson He said, even if we assume that Finnish institutions, I'm Finland, right? Finnish institutions are desirable. What reason is there to believe that Finnish-style institutions will produce Finnish-style results in the United States, which is a rather different country? There's no reason to believe that Finnish inputs will produce Finnish outputs anywhere other than Finland, and especially not in societies that are radically different from Finland. This is why airlifting copies of the U.S. Constitution all over Africa will not turn it into the United States. I got a second here actually. Let me compare this with a story out of um, Uruguay. I talked to a friend the other day who of Hispanic descent and I said, well, How do you how do you pronounce how do you pronounce Uruguay? And he said Uru, uru, uru Uruguay. Uruguay. Not like that. I said, Uruguay. What is Uruguay? Uda uru, Uruguay. Uruguay. Yeah Uruguay. I think that's Uruguay. Uruguay. That's how they do it at the Tennessee uh, Alabama game right now. Uruguay. There's no Uruguay on that tailgate. Anyway, um, Uruguay is just south of uh, Brazil. So they took, symbolically, took five Syrian refugee families and uh, let them come into, into Uruguay. South America. This is not Africa. It's south America. It's very far away from, from Syria. So uh, five families. Murhi was one of those families. So it was him and his wife and their 15 kids moved into a small town in Uruguay. This is from the Associated Press, not some right-wing hate magazine. This is the Associated Press. The refugee families complain that life in Uruguay is expensive and authorities aren't doing enough to support them. The Syrians' biggest beef is that they can't make ends meet, even though the government provides housing and gives each family a monthly stipend. Here's the key. Political analyst Daniel Chesquetti said the government underestimated cultural differences between Uruguay and the refugees' homeland, Syria, and failed to take into account their limited job skills. And in the end, the dad, Murhi, lit himself on fire in the middle of the town last week. Quote, furthering Uruguayans' indignation and sense that this South Americans, nations, humanitarian gesture has gone off the rails. That's the Associated Press writing that gone off the rails. So my point is, you can't just take someone from Syria and plop them in Uruguay and have them. You know, everything's going to be great. There are cultural differences. This is why assimilation is important in America. There are cultural differences because there are cultural values that lead to prosperity and some don't. And if we're left free, if our economic policies are left free, then it's up to us to make sure that we maintain those same values that made us prosperous as well. I fear we're losing those. Not only are we losing the, the, the economic policy of freedom, but we're also losing the cultural values of prosperity. Two different things. one 93 Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Slater, so there's one more story about uh, economic inequality. And and then I want to tell a story of James Vernon, a man who uh, should be a household name in America. I got a call the other day on my local show from a guy who said, uh, Slater, I talk to people who want this income inequality thing. And I say, listen, let's say we uh, distribute all the money. We take all the money from Bill Gates and everyone else. And we distribute it to everyone. It's not going to be long before people like Bill Gates have money again because right? they're the ones who are going to come up with a product or a service that people are going to want and pay them in exchange for it so then what are you going to do you're going to redistribute the money again and then say <laughs> things could happen you're going to redistribute it again like what's the point of all this and what's that going to do to innovation so it's a wonderful point i think it's a great argument to make with with your friends uh and colleagues and coworkers. um and when i heard it it reminded me of uh, a donald duck comic book Uh, It's from 1951. I have four minutes here. I'll share the sort of it. Um, So Scrooge McDuck is, I'm being serious, right? Uh, Honestly, it's a Donald Duck comic book from 1951. Scrooge McDuck is running a farm with his nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And and Donald Duck, and they all work on the farm. And Donald Duck gets tired of working, so he quits. So he and his, I don't know if it's like his cousin, Gladstone, they go uh, out searching for money. But not to work for it, they just hope to find it just want to stumble upon a, a bucket of money. So they get tired and they uh, uh, fall asleep under a tree. And Gladstone says, I'm going to sleep with, with my hat right here. And, and when I wake up, there's going to be all this money in my hat. So they fell asleep and a tornado blew through the town. And because Scrooge uh, unwisely keeps all of his money in the barn, the tornado busted through the barn and, and money was spread all over town. So Gladstone woke up and sure enough, his hat was full of a bunch of money. Two million dollars was in Gladstone's hat, just like that. Now, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, they're distraught that uh, they've lost uh, all the, all the money. All the money that was in the barn, it's all gone. But Scrooge said, he said, if I stay here and tend to my beans and pumpkins, I'll get it all back. So Gladstone and Donald, now that they're, they're millionaires, they decide to travel the world with their newfound riches. So they drive to town to get some gas for their car. And uh, the gas station's closed. I'm like, oh, geez. So they go to the, the bus station. They're going to go take a bus to wherever they want to go. And uh, the bus station's closed. No one's there either. So then they're like, all right, we're going to walk. So they go to the shoe store and they buy some new shoes, good walking shoes, and no one works there either. And the reason is because... Gladstone and Donald weren't the only ones who got the money. Everyone in town is now a millionaire. So no one's working anymore. No one works at the gas station. No one works at the bus station. No one works at the shoe store. No one works at the grocery store. No one works anywhere anymore because everyone is a millionaire because the money has been redistributed. So Donald and Gladstone, they get hungry, but no one's working anymore. So they go back to Scrooge's farm to go buy some food. And because Scrooge... And his nephews the entire time kept working. They're the only people in town with food. So eventually everyone ends up buying their food from Scrooge. And he gets all of his money back. And everything's back to normal. <laughs> there you go. It's the comic book. Same thing that this caller was talking about. So let's say you have this, this fetish for equality, financial Equality. Fine. But that won't last long. In the end, it will become uneven again. And then we'll redistribute it again and again and again. People will stop working because eventually what's the darn point? Now, this was, uh, again, a comic book from 1951. And it, it was incredibly influential. Back then, these comic books were incredibly influential to that generation. And I don't know if there's anything. I'm not watching a lot of kids' shows yet. I got some friends who have some young kids, and they're like, I've seen Frozen 56 times this week. I can't take it anymore. (laughs) I'm going to rip my eyeballs out. Um, So I don't know what kids' shows are like right now, but I don't know if any of them are teaching any free market – Principles, And there's a bunch that were taught in um, Donald Duck. And when I say they're incredibly influential, I bet some people rolled their eyes. Uh, Let me just tell you how influential they are. Have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Of course you have. What a ridiculous question. It's America. What are you, an Al Qaeda? The um, scene with the boulder, straight from a Donald Duck comic book from 1954. Straight out of it. Two guys take a statue off of a podium, they hear a rumble, and the boulder's rolling down, and they have to run away from it. Straight out of a Donald Duck comic book. And if you're like, well, what a weird coincidence. George Lucas wrote an introduction to a book about the cartoonist, Carl Barks. And George Lucas and Steven Spielberg both said that that scene in Indiana Jones was an homage to one of the greatest storytellers of their childhood, Carl Barks. Who wrote uh, was the illustrator for uh, and, and writer of Donald Duck? Is that wild? So, so there's so in movie making, it's it's been influential to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and and I argue as uh, the economic principles have been influential as well. Carl Barks himself, we got to go, but Carl Barks has lived quite a life himself as well. He has no he had no formal education at all. Grew up super poor, um, and saw an ad in a newspaper for a Disney cartoonist, and the rest is history. But he used his life and the opportunity in America to write cartoons about the virtues of of capitalism and influenced countless kids and and film directors in the process. We need more of that in our culture, more storytelling for kids about capitalism. Or you can always go back to the old great economist, Donald Duck.
0: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On
1: the
2: Blaze Radio Network.
0: generation of talk radio this is mike slater
1: enough of that stuff for the day i want to talk about benghazi and the, the uh we'll talk about three of the americans of the four who were uh who were killed. i say three because uh three of the four were uh from san diego uh, where i am right now so uh to people in san diego this is a local story about what happened so i want to chat about them uh in the next hour but real quick i want to tell the story of james vernon james vernon 75 years Young, retired chess club teacher. But more importantly to this moment in his life, uh, Army veteran. It's Thursday afternoon, last Thursday, a 19 year old ran into the library yelling, I'm going to kill some people. And he had two long hunting knives one in each hand and the handles were taped so that he had a better grip on him. Now inside this room were 16 kids between seven and 13 and a handful of moms. It was a homeschool chess club meeting and James, because again, he's a retired chess club teacher, uh, was just there to help out a little bit, just volunteer his time and uh, spend some time with these kids teaching chess. So the 19 year old, uh, runs in, I, I, I for the sake of time, we'll call him the uh, the murderer. Now he—I'll give it away—the punchline. I don't know what else to call him. He didn't end up killing anyone, and I'll, I'll tell the story in a second. Um, but I would be murderer. I don't know what the correct word would be for him—the knife man. I mean, whatever. Um, so, nineteen-year-old runs in. No one moves except for James. He immediately stands up to confront. The murderer. The killer. We'll call him the killer. Maybe. So just imagine this scene. Local community library. You got 16 little kids. Thir- to 7 to 13. About a handful of moms. One man. 75 years old. And he steps right up without a moment's hesitation. Why? Because he's an army veteran. He didn't run in the corner with the kids. He didn't scurry under the tables. He stood up. Confronted the killer. Now, when he stood up, he noticed that every step he took closer to the killer, he, the, the kid would back away. And the kid, he's 19, he would back away. So he took another step forward. Killer took another step back. He took another step forward, took another step back. And eventually he was able to do this and position himself so that he got between the 19-year-old and the door. And James says, I gave them the cue to get the heck out of there. And boy, they did that. Quick like rabbits. Right, so, so when he got between the, the killer and the door, he was able to g- give a, a signal and all the kids and the moms ran out of the room. James made that happen because he was able to get in position. And he tried to distract him. Uh, hopefully he didn't notice that the kids were, were scurrying out. Right, Tried to distract him, tried to talk to him, get him to calm down. But really, just so he didn't notice the the kids, and not only that, so he's doing all those things. He's he's paying attention to the kids and the moms. He's getting a position. He's trying to distract the kids, trying to calm them down, and at the same time, he's watching how uh, the 19-year-old's moving the knives. And James noticed that he was moving the knife in his right hand easier, a little more with a little more flu uh, fluid fluidity fluidity right. So he did that because he figured if the killers r- when the killer runs after me. I know what hand he's going to stab first with. So sure enough, he ran after James and with his right hand tried to stab him. James blocked it with his left hand. Now he says afterwards he should have hit him on the wrist like the army trained him to do. But that was half a century ago. (laughs) So he, he didn't quite have the details specifics down. He did remember, though, the first rule of combat, be fast and vigorous, so james seventy five years old grabbed the nineteen year old threw him on the table in the library and then, when he was laying on his back, he took a, a closed his fist and just slammed his collarbone, just started s- just pounding his collarbone until he dropped the knife and At that point, a library employee came in and and, and took the knives off the the table when he let go of them, and they both kept him on the ground until police arrived this. Ladies and gentlemen, is how it's done. Moral of the story. Sometimes even chess can be exciting. No, 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 the moral of the story is decide now. Decide now. It's a theme we have often on the show. Decide now if you're going to get involved or not. Uh, You have three options. Yes, I am going to get involved if I'm in a situation like this. No, I am not going to get involved or I don't know. I'll figure it out later, which is a no. If you don't decide now, you will run and hide. And if you decide that you want to be like James, I don't know, save the lives of 16 kids if you want to be that type of person, well, that takes time. It takes time. It takes practice to know what to do. So, may I just humbly uh, suggest some um, some self defense classes, some Krav Maga, K R A V M A G A, Krav Maga, that's what the Israeli Defense Forces use. Uh, my local show. It was after the train stabbing. I think. I think it was, that was something else too. Another was there some other shooting? I forget. And I just threw out on a whim. I was like, "Has anyone want to take some Krav Maga classes? I got a friend who's a trainer. Um, (laughs) Like 50 people showed up. Um, It was awesome. So uh, think about taking some classes or something because it may come in handy. Now, the real question is, uh, this was a week or so ago. uh, I don't know if James Vernon yet has received his invitation to the White House. I mean he did save the I don't know if he saved the lives of 16 kids but I mean there's a 19 year old with two long hunting knives 16 kids and a couple of moms I, I don't know I don't know what you know we don't know what would have happened but it it wouldn't have been good So James certainly I think saved some lives I I don't think he's received his invite to the White House Now the clock kid on the other Oh, the clock kid. He had a wonderful time at the White House on Monday. Is it? I remember on, on my Monday, on Monday's uh, my local show, we talked a lot about this because, and I put it on Facebook. That's why I put it on Facebook. I had like 200 shares like immediately, because I don't think anyone was aware of what where Clock Kid was at last week. So on Monday, he met with the president in the White House. Do you know where he was last Thursday? I think that's that's kind of an important thing to know. Can we take a let's take a minute and chat about this real quick, shall we? Let Clock Kid. So there's James Vernon. We need. I think we should know James Vernon's name. I think James Vernon. Should we should hold him up? We should celebrate him. We should thank him. We should want to be more like him. But for some reason, Clock Kid gets the invite to the White House. I want to back it up though. Do you remember um, Darfur? Remember hearing about Darfur all the time? It was about ten years ago. George Clooney uh, was, was big into the Darfur thing, and, and to his credit, he's still involved. A um, musician like U2, Black Eyed Peas, put out songs. Celebrities were all about it. It was the cause du jour. And a worthy one in 2003, um, 300,000 people were, uh, or since 2003, 300,000 people have been killed in Darfur. And that doesn't include the 2.2 million Sudanese people who were killed by the government in the South of the country before Darfur even became a problem. And the deaths there are, are unimaginable. Uh, one hospital has been bombed five times by the government. Uh, children are beheaded in front of their parents. Uh, people have been in line waiting for food, like food drops when the military comes in and just mows people down. Um, in Sudan, they have death trains to transport people to their death. And this is one reason why it bothers me that we're not allowed to ever mention anything Hitler ever did as if it never happened and as if it certainly will never happen again. Nothing ever like it will ever happen again except for like n- now in the Sudan. But, but that's a bad piece of mind. Anyway, the guy who led all this is uh, Omar al-Bashir. He's truly one of the worst dictators in, in like, certainly in the last hundred years. Right up there in history, too. One of the worst dictators. I'd put him right next to Pol Pot. I think he's killed more people than Pol Pot. Well, Clock Kid and his family went to Sudan the other day and met with Omar al-Bashir. What? Like, let that sink in for a minute. The clock kid, even, you know what I'm talking about? The poor, innocent Muslim schoolboy from Texas who was the victim of racial profiling because the white teacher thought he brought a bomb to school when in reality it was just your uh, your average run-of-the-mill digital clock with a bunch of exposed wires inside of a metal box. That's, that's all. It wasn't a bomb. Jeez. So the, the clock kid who's invited to the White House and Facebook and Google and all these other places. The progressive cause du jour from uh, two weeks ago, went a month ago, is meeting or met with the Sudanese genocidal dictator from the progressive cause du jour of ten years ago. That is weird, isn't it? <laughs> I put it. On, I put that on Facebook. I think that's what I said. I said. Uh, I said like, okay, this is happening. Like he he met with the president. He's meeting with the president. You know, our president. That's weird, right? That's weird, or we're on agreement that, that that's weird. Okay, just want to make sure I wasn't going uh, crazy. I just think um, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm half joking when I say I'm surprised that. Clock Kid and his family were allowed back in America after a trip to the Sudan to meet with the president, let alone allowed to go back, allowed to go into the White House and get close to the president. That's. He, he, let me, I'm sorry, maybe I didn't make this clear. Omar al-Bashir is wanted by the International Criminal Court for every possible crime against humanity you can imagine. He's wanted for war crimes, extermination, torture, rape, you name it. Like that, he's not just like, well, you know, some some people think he, He's not like it's not even like um Bashir in serious something, where you're like, well, he's he's the guy that we like and he's a pretty bad dude, but we like him sometimes an ally, blah blah blah. And we need some for stability. Like, hey. No, this guy is horrible. <laughs> everyone everyone thinks Omar Al Bashir is a horrible, ruthless dictator, as bad as it gets. And the kid went and his family went and met with him and then Four days later, met with our president? Come on, that's weird. And no one, no one, no one noticed. No one, <laughs> no one paid attention to it. By the way, President Obama, in, in 2006, I think, um, there was a big rally on the National Mall, uh, Save Darfur, and Senator Barack Obama spoke at it. So he spoke against Omar al-Bashir. And now the guy who just met him a couple days ago is swinging by the White House to meet with our president. So, uh, yeah, I'm only half joking when I say I don't know. I don't think there should be a lot back in the country now. Uh, the clock kid and his family did move to Cutter. They're announcing they're moving to Cutter. So, whatever. And also, think about the family. Would you want your son to meet someone like that? <laughs> someone who's wanted by the International Criminal Court. I think we should keep an eye on this family. And it has nothing to do with a clock. Anyway, Clock Kid's famous. Clock Kid gets the red carpet. James Vernon, uh, local news story, off into obscurity. Crazy. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: Mike Slater.
0: We'll continue in a moment. On The Blaze Radio Network. later on the blaze radio network
1: I just get frustrated when people like james vernon get no love they get no praise no attention and people like clock kid get the red carpet I'm frustrated it's so what's going on how can that be and i just and here's the thing People like James Vernon, the 75-year-old, they, they don't want it. They don't want the attention. They don't want the praise. right? But they're the ones who deserve it. And the people who don't deserve it, like clock kid, they bask in it. And how bizarre, wouldn't it? I'm just trying to think of if my kid got accused of something like that. Let's say he got accused of bringing a bomb to school, got arrested, all the rest. And then was invited to go on the Doctor Oz show. I think I'd say no. I think I'd say no because you didn't do anything. You didn't. You didn't. Uh, like they're not really. In, you didn't. You didn't do anything of note. You didn't do anything of merit. So what are you gonna do? You're just a novelty. I don't want you to go on TV just to be a novelty. Uh, woe unto them that call evil good and good evil that put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter it's a backwards completely upside down world another example coming up next I want to tell the story of uh, the Americans who were killed in Benghazi a reminder of why that Hillary Clinton testimony yesterday uh, or the other day mattered on the end nothing new nothing really new was learned some things confirmed um but I don't want to lose sight in all the political talk about it, uh, of of why it matters and why we have to get to the truth. We'll tell, talk about these four men, tell a little bit about their lives coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of
0: the next generation of talk radio.
2: On The Blaze Radio Network.
0: Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network.
3: You obviously met with Secretary Clinton a few days after the attack. What did she tell you then about your brother's death? I did. I I met her when we were at um, Andrews Air Force Base and. you know she she spoke to my family about how sad that we should feel for the libyan people because they're uneducated and and that breeds fear which breeds violence and 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 leads to a protest and you know i remember thinking at the time wow you know how how selfish of me i never really thought about the libyan people i've been so consumed with my own grief and loss and concern and you know when i When I think back now to that day and what she knew, you know, it shows me a lot about her character that she would choose in that moment to basically perpetuate what she knew was untrue. It seems an odd thing to even bring up in that moment, which is a moment, obviously, of extreme grief for for you and and your family. I mean, it seems like something she didn't even necessarily need to, to go
1: down that road.
3: Yeah, it was very strange, and you know, I, I I thought about it, and I never spoke about it for a long time.
1: That is uh Cedric Crusaders, Thank you for being here. America is the greatest country in the world. That is uh Dory's sister. What a, what a strange thing for Hillary Clinton to say. I just I that is so weird. And now you put that on top of the outright lies that she's told families that you know we're gonna we're gonna bring the person who made this video to justice video had nothing to do with it they know it she knew it um i want to chat about benghazi for a second but i want to do a little different than um you've heard the last week so just quick little background on how i've been approaching it uh we've been approaching it for years um three of the four americans who were killed were from or lived in san diego which is where um, i live and we have our, our daily show every uh every day. Um, Glenn Doherty uh, lived in Encinitas, which is uh, pretty close to my house, like 10 minutes from my house, maybe 30 minutes north of the city. And Ty Woods is from Imperial Beach. I lived in Imperial Beach, which is maybe 15 minutes south of San Diego. And uh, Sean Smith lived five minutes from where I'm sitting right now. Grew up five minutes from where I'm sitting right now. So this is a local story to the people in San Diego, and and it's. Uh, I, I guess my point of saying that is it, it happened seven thousand miles away and and it, it, three years ago and it's it was forever ago and forever away and so who cares and it's all about politics now you're just going after Hillary Clinton no we're we're going after the truth because these family members still have no idea what happened and, and why it couldn't have been prevented or couldn't have been stopped in the middle of? they have no answers at all. And they've been lied to the entire time, and I'll prove that point in just a second. But this is a local story. These are our neighbors here in San Diego who are still grieving and still being tossed aside by our leaders. And, and I guess my, I say it here because I, I want everyone... <laughs> To to care about what happened in Benghazi as if this was your own son, brother, father, uncle, nephew, best friend, neighbor. I'll tell a quick story, back it up for a second. The, um, the leaders uh, in my, the church I go to, we have family groups and uh, the leaders of those family groups, maybe 20 guys had a uh, meeting last week and two of them, uh, I, I sent two of the guys a text that a family member of mine was in the hospital on life support. I didn't know that they were, these two guys were in a meeting together. I didn't know they were in a meeting at all. Just told them, um, and I asked them to pray, and the two men who got the text, they made eye contact at the meeting. So imagine that you're all around a table, twenty people, and they, they both got the text at the same time and they looked at each other and they held up their phones to each other as if to say, Hey, did you get did you get the same text. And they stopped the meeting right there. Stopped the meeting and said, Guys, listen, this is what's going on, this is what we know. Um, let's get on our knees right now and pray. Let's get on our knees. We're going to stop everything. We're going to get on our knees. We're going to pray right now. And Rick said, guys, we need to pray as if this is your own son who's in the hospital on life support. Pray as if this is your child who's on life support. And he survived and everything's fine. Uh, Prayer is answered. I I share that because this... um, Benghazi committee, which should be in search of the truth for what happened and who needs to be held accountable. Most Americans think, ah, a long time ago. At this point, what difference does it make? Old news, old hat, move on, forget about it already. To which I say, care about this as if this was your own son. Care about the truth as if your own father was killed. Your own best friend. Not, not, don't think about it as a oh, well, um, uh, you know, uh, security uh, officer. <laughs> or no, it's Glenn Darty from Encinitas. Oh, a security expert who uh, was stationed in Libya. No, Tyrone Woods from Imperial Beach, owner of the Salty Frog Bar, three kids. It's Sean Smith who grew up down the street from where I'm sitting right now, Mission Bay High School, class of 95. It's not, on. some ambassador got killed. No. John Stevens, John, uh, son, big brother of three or two. You know, I I, I want us to think of Benghazi on those terms. I want us to think of it as something real and not just a headline. You know, there's a movie coming out about Benghazi, uh, Michael Bay movie, coming out January 15th. It's called 13 Hours. The trailer looks awesome. And I am... Really excited about this movie, not only because it just looks like a good movie, but I think it will do more. This movie, if done well and and all the rest, will do more justice to what happened that day than any congressional committee could ever dream of. You want to know why? Because it's going to bring it all to life. And it's going to make it really relevant and it's going to make these four americans real people to the american people not just names printed on a piece of paper they're going to make them real people just sort of like the movie american sniper did for chris kyle right it's going to make like that movie made chris and made Taya a real person same thing with these families it's going to make them uh, make them real make them relevant make it now and it's going to be really important Gonna take it off the headlines, and um, I can't do more than more than any uh committee ever could. So, if I may end this segment, and I want to come back and, and chat a little more about Glenn in, in, in particular. Um, from a friend of uh, his, a former te- a teammate, SEAL teammate, I was watching some old interviews uh, about Benghazi, uh, and I just want to play a couple clips here of. Um, some family, real, real short here. This is uh, let's do clip two. This is Chris Stevens' mom. And are you getting any sort of update or communication from the White House? No, nothing. Mm-mm. Do you feel like your questions have been answered?
4: I mean, you have to know something about something in order to have questions about it. And I don't know enough really to, to ask questions.
1: And how much does it matter to you to know?
4: Well, it doesn't bring him back, does it?
1: For her, this is not about politics. It's about a mother losing her son. This is Glendorty's mom. Clip three.
4: FBI director called you sometime after your son died. About Correct. about how long did, after your son died did FBI director Mueller call? Well
5: over a month. And said what? And he said he apologized for not calling sooner because um, he couldn't find my contact number. And I said, uh, do you mean my phone number? He said, the contact number. We couldn't find the contact number. I said, you are the FBI. He said, yes. So then I sort of was laughing to myself. And um, I said, you're going to stick to this little story, aren't you? He said, yes. So I said, well, what is it that you want? And he just said, well, we want you to know that we're there for you.
4: Are you in the phone book?
5: I think I am in the phone book. Everyone else found me.
3: Um,
1: this is Sean Smith's mom. Clip four.
3: This happened three years ago. and. and- not sure what happened that night to your son? Three
4: years ago, Hillary promised that when I went to the casket ceremony in in Washington, she promised she would get back to me and tell me what happened. She has not called me, she has not contacted me, she has not given me any information except to tell me that I am not a member of the immediate family and I do not need to know. They told you that? Yes, they did several times, over and over. Oh, my
3: goodness. Um, Clinton has testified on what happened in Benghazi before, as you know, uh, most famously in January of 2013. I'd like you to listen to what she said at that time. Okay.
4: With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was it I because understand. of a protest, or was it because of guys out for a walk one night who decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? It is our job. To figure out what happened and do everything we can to prevent it from ever happening again senator
3: when you heard that what went through your mind she's
4: lying she's absolutely lying she told me something entirely different at the casket ceremony she said it was the cause of the 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 video and that she would get back to me and tell me what happened with my son she has not only not gotten back to me, but all I've ever heard is that I am not not to know because I am not a member of the immediate family. I still want to know. I saw on TV the bloody fingerprints on the walls over there. I asked specifically, are those my son's fingerprints crawling down the wall, the bloody fingerprints? Nobody ever got back to me on that. Are those his fingerprints? Were those his fingerprints? What happened? Somebody's got to tell me from the government.
1: We will not find the truth until the whole of the American people care about this story a fraction as much as those moms care about the truth. one Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
5: I'm reading different stories about what happened, so I'm not even sure. Do you have any problem with the fact that that even to this day you're reading different stories about what happened? Some of the stories, um, like Glenn went up to help and one of the um, fighters on the roof said he was the only one that came up to help. That's a good story. But his love for his fellow man is what cost him his life. So you have the sadness there, but you also know he did the right thing in his eyes. He always went to help somebody. Do you have any...
1: uh It's uh, Glenn Doherty's mom right there talking about her son. Glenn was a Navy SEAL at the time, a security contractor in Libya. Can I read a... uh And, of course, killed in Benghazi. Can I read this letter here? This is a letter written to Glenn after he died by a SEAL friend of his, Brandon Webb. That's what Brandon said. He said, Glenn, still can't believe you punched out early on me. But glad to hear from the guys that you fought like a hero. No surprise there. You should know your efforts resulted in the rescue of over 20 Department of State personnel. They are alive today. Because of yours and Ty's heroic action, Ty Woods. Listen, man, I know you hate funerals as much as I do, but uh, service in Winchester was humbling and inspiring. The people of Boston are amazing. I had to choke back the tears as me and the boys rolled through town, and thousands of people lined the streets to honor a hero and our friend and teammate. Seeing American citizens united around a hero, if only for a brief moment, restored my faith in humanity. Your family is and was amazing. Their poise, patience, and dignity was displayed. Uh, they displayed was, was incredible to witness. Your mom, Barbara, who we just heard from, stood by stoically for hours to ensure she greeted everyone who came to pay their respects. She was an inspiration to everyone who watched. Seeing your dad, his sadness, and how proud he was of you made me give him a hug and reminded me to work harder at patching things up with my own father. Greg delivered one of the best talks I've ever heard under the most difficult of situations. What an amazing brother. I hope to get to know him better. His speech made me reflect on my own life choices and how important our relationship with friends and family is. I'm going to work harder at embracing my friends and family the way you always did. Katie gave such an awesome toast. At the wake. Full of lessons to live by. I smirked secretly to myself knowing that I've heard them all before from you. The ones I'll never forget. Drive it like it's stolen. And kids don't need store-bought toys. Get them outside. (laughs) And all the rest. Your nephews are amazing. So well behaved. Great parents, of course. Oh, by the way, I, uh, I told them your nephews, that I would take them flying when they come out west. They were beaming when I described all the crazy flying adventures me and their uncle went on. I told them how you and I would fly with our with my own kids and take turns letting them sit on our laps to get a few minutes at the controls. I'll do it upright and let them each have a go at the controls too. Sean has been steadfast in his support role and has handled everything thrown at him. Helping him this last week really showed me why he was such a close friend of yours. He's solid. And I look forward to his friendship for years to come. You chose well having him execute your will. We are all dedicated as you explicitly indicated to all of us. We are all dedicated to throwing you the biggest leaping party we can and to celebrate your life, as well as our own. Done deal. Sean and I are on it. Also, we're planning a yearly surf trip to Baja, in your memory. So, you know, if you can arrange it, can you please talk to whomever and fire up a good south swell for me and the boys? My kids will miss their Uncle Glenn. I told them it's okay to cry. We all had a good one together. And and I told them it's okay to be sad, but not for too long. You wouldn't want that. They will grow older, and like the rest of us, be better human beings for having known you. You, sir, definitely lived up to the words of Hunter S. Thompson. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, Wow, what a ride. When I skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke myself, I'll expect to see your smiling face. Handing me a cold beer. See you on the other side, brother. One Navy SEAL friend to another. That right there is why the Benghazi hearings matter. one 88 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater, show The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Nine hundred thirty-three ninety-three.
1: Mike Slater is on. Slater, so because I just looked up CNN's on the TV, and uh, Bill Clinton speaking to a crowd in Iowa. And all I could think back was, I "Remember, we had a caller a couple weeks ago, I think from Iowa, or what? Maybe New Hampshire, one of the one of the key beginning states." And I was like, "What's it like being there with all this political stuff going?" on? She's like, "It's terrible. <laughs> we all hate it." Like yeah, that sounds awful, doesn't it? Why would anyone go? Seriously, if, if I mean, it's not that many people in Des Moines, right? It's the population Des Moines? Population of Des Moines two hundred seven thousand. Nah, I guess that's no, that's that's like a little tiny-ish city. So I don't know, if people are around it either. But I mean, after a while, everyone's seen Bill Clinton talk, right? I mean, how many how many times could you go watch Bill Clinton give his stump speech or anyone? Like, I get it already. This would be really just must be horrible. Um, I came across this letter the other day. Actually, I, I quoted a line from it, and I was like, I wonder where that line's from. Uh, so I went back and I read the whole letter, and the whole thing is pretty spot on. So, um. I kind of want to read it here. I think it's really good. So this is a letter written by Samuel Adams to James Warren. Uh, You know, we used to talk about Revolutionary War era things uh, all the time. We sort of moved away from that. I don't know why. No reason. We've talked maybe more ancient Greek stuff a lot. And then like late 1800s, World War II era writings, but... Let's get back to our bread and butter here. So Samuel Adams' uh letter to James Warren. James Warren was the president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. Uh this was the government that was created right after the revolution uh was declared. Uh so this letter was written in 1779. So this is before the war uh was over. So here it is. Samuel Adams. I'll read the the, the original and then we'll break it down cuz it's written in, you know, 1779 speech. Uh Samuel Adams says, "Sir, I am afraid that there are little jealousies among them, which prevent their uniting their counsels and efforts against the inundation of levity, vanity, luxury, dissipation, and indeed vice of every kind, which I am informed threatens that country, which has heretofore stood with unexampled firmness in the cause of liberty and virtue. The torrent must be stemmed. And in order to do it effectually, There must be associations of men of unshaken fortitude. Let's break it down. So uh, there are jealousies. Factions are forming. He said we've got to stick together. He's got to stick together because there's a common enemy here. Now, of course, the British, but also uh, an enemy against the inundation of levity, the foolishness, an inundation of vanity, selfishness, pride, narcissism. An inundation of luxury. We get that one. But we know what luxury does, right? Makes you soft. Makes you lose focus on what's important. An inundation of dissipations, be wastefulness. Whether you're wasting time or money, dissipation, wastefulness. And then he wraps it up in every vice. (laughs) And if we allow this to happen, if we allow this to continue, this is the biggest threat to liberty and he says the torrent must be stemmed by associations of men of unshaken fortitude and he goes on he says a general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of america than the whole force of the common enemy because while the people are virtuous they cannot be subdued But when once they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. How interesting that he put internal invader. How necessary then is it for those who are determined to transmit the blessings of liberty as a fair inheritance to to posterity, to associate on public principles in support of public virtue? How true is that line? When you, if we abandon our virtue... Well, let's do personal. If you abandon your virtue, you are ready to surrender your liberties to the first internal invader that comes our way. Just think about that in your life, right? When you surrender your dignity, your uh, the value, your, your your like your own value of life, then you're more likely to be in an abusive relationship. You're more likely to. Stay in a dead end job. You're more likely to be uh, abused verbally, even by your bo- whatever. Right? If you lose your sense of virtue, then yeah, you're more you're more likely to be victimized. And that's that's essentially what he's saying, right? He's like, we're abandoning our virtue. We're going to surrender our liberties to internal invaders and, and, and external. But I think the internal is the more interesting one for us. Maybe not, though, if times are changing. We kicked off the whole show talking about connection between broken families and poverty. And not only that, so broken families leads to poverty, which leads to a rise of uh, support for socialist policies. And the fact that we shared earlier is if you are born as a child in the uh, lowest quintile, so the, so the poorest 20% of Americans, with two parents, you're married, two married parents, only 17% of those kids will grow up to and remain in the poorest 20% of Americans. All the rest will rise, in, rise, rise into different income groups, rise into different income groups, all the rest. But if you're born in the poorest 20%, to to uh, one parent or parents that aren't married, fifty percent will stay in the poorest twenty percent for the rest of their life. Why? Because stable families. When you have a stable family, you you feel security when you grow. You you have confidence. Uh, you're able to raise kids to have the discipline and the soft skills that are necessary to be productive in life. Right? Punctual, look in someone's eye, firm handshake, um, uh, uh, uh polite, all the all those kind of things. And that leads you to be successful. And where that's lacking in families, I should say, it's for the rest of us to help out with mentoring programs, big brothers, big sisters, boys and girls club, whatever it takes to fill in the gaps. But anyway, that line here, while the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. Last line here. If virtue and knowledge are diffused among the people, they will never be enslaved. This will be their great security. Virtue and knowledge will forever be an even balance for power and riches. How great is that? You know, Bernie Sanders and the rest, they they talk about how uh, the the rich bankers and the powerful CEOs are the downfall of our country. No, the the virtue and knowledge uh, of of the citizens is the great balance to that. And I've always thought that, you know, even when it comes to elections, I've always thought there's way too much of an emphasis on money. I I I don't care how much money Jeb Bush has. I'm not voting for him because I have virtue and knowledge. And if people had those two things, then they wouldn't be bought by money or convinced by slick ads or stump speeches by Bill Clinton in Iowa right now. Virtue and knowledge. I lied. This is the last line. I hope our countrymen will never depart from the principles and maxims which have been handed down to us from our wise forefathers. Let us never depart from them. this greatly depends upon the example of men of character and influence of the present day. This is a subject my heart is much set upon. The principles and maxims let us never depart from them. But that depends entirely on the example of men of character and influence in the present day. I'm with you, Sam. Someone should name a beer after this guy. Look at this guy. He's brilliant. Can I restore some hope here in the, in the a few minutes I, I have remaining here on this, our three hours together? Maybe I'll restore some hope here. You may have seen this on uh, on The Blaze, I think, the other day. Someone put this on Facebook. They said, today, my mom and I went in Burger King when this older gentleman was in line in front of us. And this young guy comes out from the back, like, in, like where he works there in the kitchen area, comes out from the back and extended his hand to this man. And the man tried to give him his coupon. When the kid said, oh, no, I just want to shake your hand and thank you for your service, and for my freedom in our beautiful country. Wow. I almost cried. This moved, so, this moved me so much. I don't know why. I'll tell you exactly why. It's because you, you witnessed a restoration of the principles and maxims that have made America the greatest country in the world. That's why. You witnessed it right there in person. She said, I just had to get their names in a picture because Mr. Kenneth Haas, who's 94 and a veteran from World War II, was so shocked and said that that just made his day. Especially since Devontae Nicholson was such a respectable young man. Devontae said that his dad was military and he plans to go into the Air Force after graduating. So this is just a shout out to those two wonderful men that I had the pleasure of meeting just by chance at Burger King. Oh, and I also got a hug and a kiss on my cheek from Mr. Haas. <laughs> thank you both for being the great man and young man that you are. And I love that. Thank you, for, thank you both for being the great man and young man that you are. And it's a wonderful picture. 94-year-old World War II veteran and uh, what a 17-year-old kid uh, just arms around each other smiling for the camera. Great stuff. I love stories like that. Oh, Hopefully, it gives you a little hope for that restoration of virtue and knowledge. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three Slater Radio on Twitter. You know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to tweet that uh, letter out right now. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
2: You're listening to
0: Mike Slater
2: on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: This is Mike Slater
1: because Crusaders, we've got a couple minutes here. Um, we were just talking about integrity and virtue and morals and all that stuff uh, I think it's a good time to update in just a brief minute here about uh the army official military policy to allow Afghan boys to be raped on American military bases by Afghan soldiers and police officers whom we pay and arm and train and just turn the other way and two green berets roughed up a uh, Afghan police chief, who they know, and he, the, the police chief admitted to raping a boy. And uh, they roughed him up and told him, you know, they said, don't do it again. And he laughed. So they roughed him up a little bit, not in retaliation, just to let him know that they were serious. And the two Green Berets got kicked out of the military. So Dan Quinn was relieved of his duty uh, and he's like, I'm out of here. Uh, Charles Martland uh, was, you know, basically given a desk job or whatever, but he wanted to stay in. And the Army is trying to kick him out. And he lost his final appeal. Now, the good news is San Diego's congressman is Marine, uh, uh, Duncan Hunter. And Duncan Hunter's office has been fighting this. And it looks like they're going to get him off on a technicality. We don't have time to explain now. But it looks like Martin's going to be allowed to stay in. But how ridiculous that this even needs to be a conversation. So I had the unbelievable honor of talking with uh, Captain Dan Quinn, uh, one of those Green Berets. The the one who got kicked out is like, I'm leaving. I can't I can't do this. Listen, he, he told this story where he got to Afghanistan and he went to a village. He and uh and Charles, six other Green Berets and ten other um, service members. They had to drive on a one-lane road an hour away from the nearest American, IEDs along the entire way they had to fight their way to get into the town in the first place. There were a couple thousand people, uh villagers inside this town, and they had to fight the Taliban. And I said, well, how would you know who the Taliban were? And they're like, we didn't. <laughs> so what are you talking about. He's like, yeah, we just had to trust the locals. And I said, well, how do you trust the locals? How do you know how to trust them? He's like, ah, you, just, you just do. And I said, well, hold on. So you're walking around. At any moment, one of these people who you trust could actually be Taliban and could shoot you in the head. And he said, yeah. So on top of that, he comes across a girl, 14-year-old girl who was raped in a field. the girl was given two two options to either be killed because she was dirty or marry her rapist she married the rapist an afghan soldier who we pay he told stories of we would he we would give taxpayer money to afghan police chiefs they would take the money and spend them on basically child prostitutes, instead of paying all the other Afghan police officers. So taxpayer money is going to this. Dan Quinn's telling this whole story. It's unbelievable. But these are men of integrity. I want to end with this uh, quote here from Charles Marlin. This is the guy who's trying to stay in. He said, I chose the morally right decision because moral law transcends all boundaries and organizations. He was a walk-on at Florida State. Uh, he played football before joining the Army. He said, I learned about the moral right from the Christian values and beliefs of uh, of coach at Florida State, Bobby Bowden. And we all learned about the moral right during the Penn State football program's child sex abuse scandal. Remember that, Jerry Sandusky and Joe Paterno? Everyone blamed Joe Paterno because you, he knew what was going on, turned a blind eye. And we're asking our Army service members to do the exact same thing and then live with it the rest of their lives. How shameful. We'll keep you updated on that story. Mike Slater, we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.